0: Hey, folks, Brian here. It, we are now closing in on March 2023, and my goals remain the same. Um, I'm going to try to get streaming going, uh, hopefully by this summer, and I'm certainly looking to get the episodes of this podcast to and past 100 by the end of next year. Um, I also need your guys' help Um, wherever you listen, like, rate, review, and subscribe, leave five-star reviews, please. That really helps people find the podcast. And if you're able to, and you're so inclined, you could also help with, uh, monetary donations. Now, don't get me wrong. I know better than most that we are in a massive period of inflation mean hell eggs cost $4 a dozen now when they used to cost a dollar and a half a few months ago so yeah I mean I get it You know, it's hard that's why I try not to ask too much but I'm still going to ask anyway Um, for a dollar a month minimum you can help get this podcast to where I want it to be and hopefully we can get there Um, go to anchor.fm go to the Confessions of an Arcade Addict uh, page And there is a button for donations right there. If you click on that, and like I said, for as little as a dollar a month, you can help this podcast continue to grow. And let's keep right on rolling into 2023. Once again, I've got things planned and finances permitting, I can achieve them. So let's go. Now here is your host, Brian Hey folks, Brian here And this is episode number 62 Of the Confessions of an Arcade Attic podcast What's going on out there? Oh, uh, let's see Uh, just to catch you guys up to speed Since I recorded episode 61 last month Um, things have been pretty much the same Although, the thing, uh, things at the, the arcade have been a lot busier on my Saturday nights. Uh, last night, we had over 300 people f- uh, for the entire day, which is really good. The owner was happy about that. Um, it was pretty much wall-to-wall, you know, shoulder-to-shoulder, pretty much the entire way through the arcade up until probably about 9:30 or so and that was when i was actually able to start cleaning things so i could get out at a reasonable time and even then i didn't leave the arcade until midnight <laughs> that's just kind of how it is when it's that busy um let's see so yeah things have been going well at the arcade i mean it's fun to just watch kids you know, from age I would say probably like 4 or 5 up until like, you know, 16, 17, and even beyond that age, you know, enjoying these classic games, you know, and, you know, having fun and that kind of stuff, you know, when they could just be home playing their PlayStation 5s or their Xbox One Ss or whatever it is. You know, it's a good thing to see. Um, aside from that... um working my regular job during the week um things are going okay there you know not too many surprises which is a good thing although there was a pleasant surprise when I saw my schedule for this week now it is uh, time check uh, Monday February 27th and it's almost 5 p.m. I don't have to go to work today because I have the day off um so yeah I'm very happy about that um uh, aside from that you know, not too much going on um I, I don't remember if I talked about it in episode 61 but yeah my my friend bill uh off the uh, Robotron um uh, message board on Facebook the discussion group he turned over the machine at the arcade in Brighton he got 10 million points you know which was awesome you know he had to set it up and cut out all of the sound distractions because it gets really loud in the arcade between the sounds coming from the machines and the music coming over the PA so yeah he had like headphones on and he'd been playing I think he said you've been playing like two and a half hours maybe three hours or something like that and yeah he got 10 million points and I got to see it which was awesome you know Bill's a good guy and we actually met face to face at um Pinball Pete's and we would play uh, Robotron and you know we would be talking about you know how they can't keep that machine uh, well maintained enough and you know the fire controls wouldn't work correctly or the movement controls wouldn't work correctly and I told him I said hey you know I work at the arcade up in Brighton you know and they have a Robotron machine that machine plays like a butter so yeah come on up And one day he did. And, you know, I played a couple games with him. And I don't know what it is, but when he and I play doubles, it's like both our games suffer for it. It's really funny. I mean, Bill's a better Robotron player than I am, obviously. And, you know, he's good for or at least at that point when we actually played together, he's good for, you know, 2 million points plus, and I was still trying to crack a million at the time. So, you know, we played, you know, we played doubles on, you know, Robotron machines, and we're lucky to get, like, you know, six hundred, seven hundred thousand 700,000 points, which is, like, for him, is way below average, and for me, that's right around average or slightly above. It's really weird. Um, So, yeah it was good to see him uh, that day when I walked in to play some games before my shift and he was already like what I want to say like 7 million points in and he had a really good surplus of lives and you know I gave him some encouragement and I left him alone because you know he doesn't need me there you know cheerleading him he's good enough he can do it And by that point, uh, when he was at, you know, seven million points or so, you know, he's like, he's in the home stretch. All he has to do is just maintain. And the thing is about Robotron is that uh, with the uh, chipset that machine has, is that I think once you get past stage 256, the entire machine resets back to level one. And that's sort of like a welcome break because as you know Robotron starts off easily enough but by level 9 you are in the you are just in it <laughs> you are just in the fight of your life and it doesn't get much easier from there i mean my major stumbling block with Robotron has always been levels what 30 to 39 which are recognized as the hardest levels in the game and if i'm not in the right headspace and i'm not doing well enough in the game you know my game comes to an end right there right around like 700 800,000 points if i can get past those you know the game eases up slightly you know it doesn't keep getting harder it sort of plateaus like right there And then, you know, I can sort of cruise and get a million points. I mean, I've already gotten a million points twice because I'm able to get past those 10 levels and, you know, sort of go into the level 40 and even towards level 50 and everything's okay, which is just as well. And not only that, it's like you just have to get your surplus of points early in order to give yourself a really good shot at you know getting a million points but yeah so that day you know I saw what William, what Bill was doing and I just said hey Bill what's up and you know I watched him for a minute and just clapped him on the shoulder and I went, a, went on my merry way and played some games and left him alone um, and then I want to say about 30 or 45 minutes after I had clocked in you know I had gotten out from behind the counter and walked over there and saw what he was doing and he was at I want to say what 9,700,000 and he had still had a surplus of lives so I knew he was going to be able to do it and I congratulated him at that point and I went back behind the counter and sure enough about 15 minutes later you know he lets out you know a whoop and a holler know and he's like really happy with himself and you know because he turned it over and as soon as he uh let his game lapse because he probably could have kept going and probably could have gotten another four five hundred thousand maybe even a million or two um he decided to let his game lapse because he probably wore himself out i mean i took a picture of him right after he put his uh, initials on the machine and took a picture of the high score on the machine and immediately posted it on the uh, Robotron uh, discussion group. And it's been getting really good uh, positive reaction ever since I did it that day, which was cool. You know, Bill was really happy, you know, and happy with his performance, and I couldn't blame him, even though he looked like he'd been, like, you know, you know, playing, uh, full court black basketball for like two hours plus, you know, his shirt was soaked with sweat and everything else and his face was flushed. but yeah, he, he did it and, you know, props to him. So yeah, that happened. Um, aside from that, just been playing games. Um, I gotten a couple of games off of steam's couple of new games. As a matter of fact, I'm going to open up my steam right now so I can give you, Uh, A list of what I've been getting lately. Um, I reinstalled Battletech on my machine, and everything's going well there. You know, somebody actually made a video on YouTube on how to install, properly install, um, the Extended Commanders Edition mod, and once I followed all the steps, the game works like a charm. No problems at all. So I'm really happy with that. So I've gotten back into playing Battletech. Uh, Let's see. What have I gotten? I've gotten uh, a game called um, uh, Saturn Deluxe, uh, which is sort of a uh, Robotron uh, clone. Not a clone, but, you know, it's pretty much like Robotron. Uh, what else did I get? I got, um, uh, I've told you guys about Ultratron, which is a, like, a sequel to Robotron, in a way, written by someone else, you know, where all the humans have been killed, and now you're out for revenge, and you're out to kill, you know, the bosses and stuff. Actually, I actually completed that game, um, recently, like, I think about two weeks ago, I, I completed that game. Uh, let's see, what's another one I, I got? Uh, yeah, I've gotten a one, Space Invaders type game, uh, with power-ups called Ice Wall, which is actually a really nice game. It's fun to play, um, you know, even though I wish there was more to it, there's only, like, what, four levels to the game with, like, what is it? Like, four sub-levels per level, so you basically have, like, 16 levels to it, plus boss fights, which is not too bad. And I got a uh, new game uh, this week past that I saw on uh, YouTube. Shout out to um, Lee and James from Ultra C, who I watch. You know, they are always looking at uh, new games on Steam. And, you know, they uh, post videos on them and stuff like that. And they stream on Twitch, which is cool. Uh, It's a game called Star Survivor, which is uh, a roguelike game where you're a spaceship uh, just trying to uh, get through enemy sectors. It's sort of like a combination uh, roguelike and deck-building game. And it's one that I actually kind of like. Uh, I just played it. I just actually beat the prologue, which is the free version. Uh, the Apparently the uh, paid version is going to be coming out like the beginning of March. So by the time you guys uh, hear this... Uh, you're going to be seeing You'll. Know, it'll be available on steam but yeah it's it's a lot of fun it's really cool i like it you know it it's very interesting uh really interesting game so that's been going on and also i've been pretty much just writing uh segments for future episodes and um trying to write the synopsis for a fantasy story I want to write and no I'm not going to publish it I'm doing it just for myself just to see if I can do it and you know I'm still writing down you know chapter breakdowns and stuff like that and character interactions and you know how the characters think and you know just something that I do in my shall we say um, not so copious free time (laughs) you know You know, I work, what, five, six, seven days a week sometimes. So, yeah, I don't have a lot of free time. But when I do, I like to do things like that. Um, Aside from that, um, you know, just uh, also uh, still converting uh, D&D characters uh, from uh, my old school campaigns from when I was playing back in the 80s and 90s to my current world and things like that. You know, just to keep my game, my RPG uh, knives sharp, if you will. And, you know, just the usual stuff. Just, you know, taking care of my son and, you know, doing home care and all that kind of stuff. You know, just living life. You know how it is. Uh, Let's see. So, yeah, I've done, once again, a, uh, you know, looked at uh, voicemails and emails and nothing's out there. So, once again, if you guys have any questions, thoughts, comments any games that you like that you would like me to cover you know just hey hit me up arcadeaddictbrian at gmail.com also there is a phone number for voicemails that number is 734-743-2433 also i am on instagram twitter tumblr and uh facebook on facebook just Uh, Search for Confessions of an Arcade Addict. It'll take you right to the page. And if you type in um, Confessions of an Arcade Addict podcast, it will take you to the discussion group. Um, As a matter of fact, it's almost time for a new question. So I'll see about posting one in the next couple of days. Um, On uh, Tumblr, uh, it is tumblr.com slash blog slash Confessions of an Arcade Addict. On Twitter, it is arcadeaddict_b, underscore B. And on e, uh, Instagram, it is arcadeaddictbrian, Brian, all one word. Um, I am on Facebook and Instagram the most. So if you want to get a hold of me directly, either send me a DM or message me on Facebook and I'll see what you got to say and we'll go from there. So yeah, multiple ways of getting hold of the show. So if you got any questions or thoughts or anything like that, feel free hit me up okay this is a a short show only three segments um i'm going to be talking about uh a classic video game of course and uh a home system and there's an on the road segment on the end so let's get right to it are you experienced i'm too old for this Harding your seats like a teenager. Hope, I think I'm getting too old for this, stuff. We're getting too old for this. Listen, you was born too old for this. I'm getting too old for this. We're getting too old for this, lying. We're in the heather chasing other men's cattle. I'm getting too old for this sort of thing. Maybe we're getting too old for this. What do you think, huh? I'm not too old for this shit. I'm not too old for this You will it not. We're not too old for this shit. We're not too old for this shit. We're not too old for this. like you believe. We're not too old. I'm not gonna shit. buy a hemorrhoid like I'm not too old for this shit. Are you experienced Dig Dug? <laughs> At some point I had to get to it, right, guys? So yeah, I mean This game, you know, I I liked it, but you know, I've got some thoughts on it after, you know, I go through some of the information about the game. So let's just get right to it and let's see what wikipedia has to say dig dug is a maze arcade game developed by namco in 1981 and released in 1982 distributed in north america by atari incorporated the player controls dig dug to defeat all enemies per stage by either inflating them to bursting or crushing them underneath rocks dig dug was planned and designed by masahisa ikigami with help from galaga creator shigeru yokoyama It was programmed for the Namco Galaga Arcade Board by Shoichi Fukutani, who worked on many of Namco's earlier arcade games along with Toshio Sakai. Music was composed by Yuriko Kano, including the character movement jingle at executives' request as her first Namco game. Namco heavily marketed it as a strategic digging game. You could call it that, for sure. Uh, Upon release, Dig Dug was well-received by critics for its addictive gameplay, cute characters, and strategy. Uh, During the golden age of arcade video games, which once again is from 1978 with the advent of Space Invaders until 1983. Uh, It was globally successful, including as the second-highest-grossing arcade game of 1982 in Japan. It prompted a long series of sequels and spin offs, including the Mr. Driller series for several platforms. It is in many Namco video game compilations for many systems. Okay, the gameplay uh, Dig Dug is a maze video game. The player controls protagonist Dig Dug, Taizo Hori in Japan. Uh, to eliminate each screen's enemies. Pukas red cr- creatures with comically large goggles, and figars, fire-breathing green dragons. Dig Dug can use an air pump to inflate them to bursting or crush them underneath large falling rocks. Bonus points are awarded for squashing multiple enemies with a single rock, and dropping two rocks in a stage yields a bonus item, which can be eaten for points. Once all the enemies have been defeated, Dig Dug progresses to the next stage. Enemies chase Dig Dug through the dirt in the form of ghostly eyes, only becoming solid in the air, whereas pump can either stun or destroy them. Enemies can eventually become faster and more aggressive, and the last one uh, then attempts to escape the stage. Later stages vary in dirt color, while increasing the number and speed of enemies. Okay, the development... In 1981, Dig Dug was planned and designed by Masahisa Ikegami with help from Shigeru Yokoyama, the creator of Galaga. The game was programmed for the Namco Galaga Arcade System Board by uh, Shigeichi Ishimura, a Namco hardware engineer, and the late Shoichi Fukutani, along with Toshio Sakai. Uh, Other staff members were primarily colleagues of Yokoyama. Yoriko Kano composed the soundtrack as her first video game project. Tasked with making Dig Dug's movement sound, she couldn't make a realistic stepping stone, so instead she made a short melody. Hiroshi, Mr. Dotman Ono, a Namco graphic artist, designed the sprites. The team hoped to allow player-designed mazes which could prompt unique gameplay mechanics, contrasting with the preset maze exploration in Pac-Man. Namco's marketing materials heavily call it a strategic digging game. Alright, on to the release. Dig Dug was released in Japan on February 20, 1982. It was released in North America in April 1982 by Atari as part of the licensing deal with Namco. Namco released it in Europe on April 19, 1982. The first home conversion of Dig Dug was released for the Atari 2600 in 1983, developed and published by Atari, which was followed by versions for the Atari 5200, Atari 8-bit family, Commodore 64, and Apple II. In Japan, it was ported to the Casio PV-1000 in 1983, the MSX in 1984, and the Famicom in 1985. Gakken produced a handheld LCD tabletop game in 1983, which replaced Dig Dug's air pump with a flamethrower to accommodate hardware limitations. Namco released a Game Boy version in North America only in nineteen eighty. 92 with an all-new game called New Dig Dug where the player must collect keys to open an exit door. This version was later included in the 1996 Japan-only compilation Namco Gallery Volume 2, which also includes Galaxian, Tower of Druaga, and Famista 4. A Japanese Sharp A- X68000 version was developed by Dempa and released in 1995 bundled with Dig Dug 2. The Famicom version was re released in Japan for the Game Boy Advance in 2004 as part of the Famicom miniseries. Dig Dug is a mainstay in Namco video game compilations, including Namco, Namco Museum Volume 3, Namco History Volume 3, Namco Museum 64, and Namco Museum 50th Anniversary. Also, Namco Museum Remix, Namco Museum Essentials, and Namco Museum Switch. Wow, that's pretty good. Uh, The game was released online on Xbox Live Arcade in 2006, supporting online leaderboards and achievements. It is part of the Namco Museum Virtual Arcade, and was added to the Xbox One's backward compatibility lineup in 2016. A version of the Japanese Wii Virtual Console was released in 2009. Uh, Dig Dug is a bonus game in Pac-Man Party, alongside the arcade versions of Pac-Man and Galaga. Okay, let's go to the reception. Uh, Dig Dug was a critical and commercial success upon release and was praised for its gameplay and layered strategy. In Japan, it was the second-highest-grossing arcade game of 1982, just below Namco's pole position. In North America, Atari sold 22,228 Dig Dug arcade cabinets by the end of 1982, earning $46,300,000 in 1982 money, which is the equivalent to $130 million in 2021. That's in cabinet sales. Around July 1983, it was one of the six top-grossing games. It was popular during the golden age of arcade video games, which we talked about. Uh, The 2004 Famicom Mini release had 58,572 copies sold, and the Xbox Live Arcade version had 222,240 copies sold by 2011. American publication Blit Magazine favorably compared it to games such as Pac-Man for its simple controls and fun gameplay. Allgame called it, quote, an arcade and NES classic, end quote, praising its characters, gameplay, and unique premise, and for its easy home platform conversion. In 1998, Japanese magazine Gamist called it one of the greatest arcade games of all time for its addictiveness and for breaking the traditional dot-eater gameplay used in games such as Pac-Man and Rally X. In a 2007 retrospective, Eurogamer praised its perfect gameplay and strategy, saying it is one of, quote, the most memorable and legendary video game releases of the past 30 years, end quote. The killer list of video games rated it the sixth most popular coin-op game of all time. Mm-hmm. That's pretty impressive. Uh, electronic Fun with Computers and Games praised the Atari 8-bit version for retaining the arcade's entertaining gameplay and for its simple controls. Some home versions were criticized for quality and lack of exclusive content. The readers of Softline magazine ranked Dig Dug the tenth worst Apple II and the fourth worst Atari 8-bit video game of 1983 for its subpar quality and failure to. Meet consumer expectations. Reviewing the Xbox Live Arcade digital re release, IGN liked its presentation, leaderboards, and addictive gameplay, recommending it for old and new fans alike. A similar response was echoed by GameSpot for its colorful artwork and faithful arcade gameplay, and by Eurogamer for its addictiveness and longevity. Eurogamer, IGN, and GameSpot all criticized its lack of online multiplayer and for achievements being too easy to unlock with Eurogamer in particular criticizing the game's controls for sometimes being unresponsive. Okay, and let's go to the legacy. Dig Dug prompted a fad of digging games. Clones include the arcade game Zigzag, released in 82, the Atari 8-bit family game of Ant Eater in 82, uh, Merlin's Pixie Pete, Victory's Cave Kooks for the Commodore 64, and Saguaro's Pump Man, uh, for the TRS-80 TRS Color Computer, the most successful is Universal Entertainment's arcade game Mr. Do in 1982, released about six months later and surpassing clone status. Uh, Sega's Borderline, which was in 81, when it was ported to the Atari 2600 as Thunderground in 1983, was mistaken as a semi-clone of Dig Dug and Mr. Do. Boulder Dash. Uh, which was released in 1984 also drew comparisons to dig dug numerous mobile games or clones or variations of dig dug such as digger man dig deep dig me forever dig out puzzle to the center of the earth mind blitz i dig it dug <laughs> dug dug, dug mine sweeper dig away and dig dog jeez yeah talk about clones jeez okay uh sequels Uh, Dig Dug prompted a long series of sequels for several platforms. The first of these, Dig Dug 2, was released in Japan in 1985 to less success, opting for an overhead perspective instead of digging through the earth. Dig Dug drills along fault lines to sink pieces of an island into the ocean. A second sequel, Dig Dug Arrangement, was released for arcades in 1996 as part of the Namco Classic Collection Volume 2 Arcade Collection say that five times fast, uh, with new enemies, music, power-ups, boss fights, and two-player cooperative gameplay. A 3D remake of the original Dig Dug Deeper was published by Infogrames in 2001 for Windows. A Nintendo DS sequel, Dig Dug Digging Strike, was released in 2005, combining elements from the first two games and adding a narrative link to the Mr. Driller series. A massively multiplayer online game, Dig Dug Island, was released in 2008 and was an online version of Dig Dug 2. Servers lasted for less than a year and was discontinued on April 21st, 2009. Hm, interesting. interesting. Uh, let's see, related media. Two Dig Dug-themed slot machines were produced by Japanese company Oizumi in 2003, both with small LCD monitors for animated characters. A webcomic adaption was produced in 2012 by Shifty Look, a subsidiary of Bam- Bandai Namco focused on reviving older Namco franchises with nearly 200 issues by several artists, concluding in 2014 following the closure of Shifty Look. Dig Dug is a main character in the Shifty Look web series Mappy the Beat. A remix of the Dig Dug soundtrack appears in the PlayStation 2 game Technic Beat. Hmm, Interesting. The character Dig Dug was renamed to Taizo Hori, a play on the Japanese phrase Hori Taizo, meaning I want to dig. (laughs) That's cute. I like that. He became a prominent character in Namco's own Mr. Driller series, where he is revealed to be the father of Susumu Hori and being married to Berezu protagonist Masuyo Tobi, who would divorce for unknown reasons. (laughs) Oh, that's funny. Uh, Taizo appears as a playable character in Namco Super Wars for the Wonderswan Color, and Namco uh, and Capcom for the PlayStation 2 only in Japan. That's too bad. I would be interested to see that. Uh, Taizo appears in the now-defunct web browser game Namco High as the principal of the high school simply known as President Dig Dug. (laughs) Pukas appear in several Namco games, including Sky Kid, R4, Ridge Racer Type 4, Pac-Man World, Pro Baseball, Famisa, DS 2011, and in Nintendo Super Smash Bros. for the Nintendo 3DS and Wii U. Dig Dug characters briefly appear in the film Wreck-It Ralph in 2012. And that's all the information that Wikipedia has on it. Alright, my experiences with it. The first time I played this game was at the Rexall drugstore in the mall. Shortly after that, the mall arcade got a machine. Uh, I think this game got universal coverage in that all the arcades in my area had this game. I was decent at it, but as I've said in previous episodes, I was much more of a Mr. Do guy because I just had more fun playing it. I used to watch people like like my friend Mark just wreck Dig Dug and try to pick up tips from them. The date... The... (laughs) edit. The debate or feud as to which game was better between this and Mr. Do was just silly back then, as Dig Dug players viewed themselves as more as purists, and that Mr. Do was too cute of a game and beneath their notice. (laughs) It's just amazing what teenagers thought was important back then, especially when it came to video games, but I digress. So that's Dig Dug. Um, If you are a dig dug player or you've played dig dug in the past and you know you like the game or you don't like it or you've got your own thoughts on it hey let me know brian at gmail.com okay let's move right on to home systems there's no place like home, hey guys, I'm home. Look, this is not a game max are you now we play a game. Love to. Screw you guys. am a game. I'm going home! Home systems. The Atari Jaguar. Okay. This is a system that I thought had some promise, but yeah, it just didn't end up working out. But Let's get into the particular, shall we? Once again, this is from Wikipedia. The Atari Jaguar is a home video game console developed by Atari Corporation and released in North America in November of 1993. Part of the fifth generation of uh, video game consoles and competed with the 16-bit Sega Genesis, the Super NES, and the 32-bit 3DO interactive multiplayer that launched in the same year. Powered by two custom 32-bit processors called Tom and Jerry, in addition to a Motorola 68000, Atari marketed it as the world's first 64-bit game system, emphasizing its 64-bit bust used by the Blitter. The Atari Jaguar launched with Cybermorph as the packing game, which received divisive reviews. The system's library ultimately comprised of only 50 licensed games. Development of the Atari Jaguar started in the early 1990s by Flare Technology, which focused on the system after cancellation of the Atari Panther console. The multi-chip architecture, hardware bugs, and poor tools made writing games for the Jaguar difficult. Underwhelming sales further eroded the console's third-party support. Atari attempted to extend the lifespan of the system with the Atari Jaguar CD add-on, with an additional 13 games and emphasizing the Jaguar's price Of $100 US less than its competitors. With the release of the Sega Saturn and the Sony PlayStation in 1995, sales of the Jaguar continued to fall. It sold no more than 150,000 units before it was discontinued in 1996. The commercial failure of the Jaguar prompted Atari to leave the console market. After Hasbro Interactive, Acquired all Atari Corporation properties, the patents of the Jaguar were released into the public domain, with the console declared an open platform. Since its discontinuation, hobbyists have produced games for the system. K. History The Jaguar was developed by the members of Flare Technology, a company formed by Martin Brennan and John Matheson. The team had claimed they could not only make a console superior to the Genesis or the Super NES, but they could do it and also be cost-effective. Impressed by their work on the Konix multi-system, Atari persuaded them to close Flare and form a new company called Flare 2, with Atari providing the funding. Flare 2 initially set to work designing the two consoles for Atari. One was a 32-bit architecture, codenamed Panther, and the other was a 64-bit system, codenamed Jaguar. Work on the Jaguar design progressed faster than expected, so Atari canceled the Panther project to focus on the more pro- promising Jaguar. The Jaguar was unveiled in August 1993 at the Chicago Consumer Entertainment Show. To prepare for its launch, the Atari ST computer line was discontinued, and support for early, earlier systems such as the Atari 2600 and Atari 8-bit family had already been dropped by January 1st, 1992. All 20,000 Jaguar units shipped during its test launch in 1993 were sold. Uh, let's see, the launch... The Jaguar was launched on November 23, 1993 at a price of $249.99, under a $500 million manufacturing deal with IBM. The system was initially available only in test markets of New York City and San Francisco, with the slogan, do the math, claiming superiority over competing 16-bit and 32-bit systems. During this test launch, Atari sold all 20,000 units, hoping it would rally support for the system. A nationwide release was followed six months later in early 1994. The Jaguar struggled to attain a substantial user base. Atari reported that it had shipped 17,000 units as part of the system's initial test market in 1993. By the end of 1994, it reported that it had sold approximately 100,000 units. Computer Gaming World wrote in January of 1994 that the Jaguar was, quote, a great machine in search of a developer or customer base, end quote, as Atari had to, quote, overcome its stigma of its name, uh, lack of marketing customer support, as well as poor developer relations in the past, end quote. Atari, had quote, ventured late into the third-party software support, end quote, for the Jaguar while competing consoles, Breedio's 18-month public relations blitz would result in an avalanche of software support, the magazine reported. The small size and poor quality of the Jaguar's game library became the most commonly cited reasons for the Jaguar's tepid adoption, as early releases like Trevor McFerr in the Crescent Galaxy, Raiden, and Evolution Dino Dudes also received poor reviews, the latter two for failing to take full advantage of the Jaguar's hardware. Jaguar did eventually earn praise with games such as Tempest 2000, Doom, and Wolfenstein 3D. The most successful title during the Jaguar's first year was Alien vs. Predator. Uh, However, these occasional successes were seen as insufficient, while the Jaguar's competitors were receiving a continual stream of critically acclaimed software. GamePro concluded that their rave review of Alien vs. Predator by remarking, quote, if Atari can turn out a dozen more games like AVP, Jaguar owners could fully rest easy and enjoy their purchase, end quote. Next Generation commented that, that, quote, Thus far, Atari has spectacularly failed to deliver on the software side, leaving many to question the actual quality and capability of the hardware. With only one or two exceptions, Tempest 2000 is cited most frequently. There have just been no great, truly great games for the Jaguar up to now, end quote. They further noticed that while Atari is well known for the older games, uh, the company had much less overall brand recognition than Sega, Sony, Nintendo or even the 3DO company. That should tell you just how far Atari had fallen at that point. Because at one point, Atari was like the most recognizable brand in video gaming. (laughs) Oh well. Uh, To continue. However, they argued that with its low price point, the Jaguar might still compete if Atari could improve the software situation. Okay, the bit count controversy. Atari tried to downplay competing consoles by proclaiming the Jaguar was the only 64 bit system. The claim is questioned by some because the Motorola 68,000 CPU and the Tom and Jerry coprocessors execute 32 bit instruction sets. Atari's reasoning that the 32-bit Tom and Jerry chips work in tandem to add up to a 64-bit system was ridiculed in a MIDI editorial by Electronic Gaming Monthly, which commented that, that, quote, If Sega did the math for the Sega Saturn the way Atari did the math for the Jaguar, the Sega Saturn would be a 112-bit monster of a machine, end quote. Ouch. <laughs> Next generation, while giving a mostly negative review of the Jaguar, maintained that it is a true sixty-four bit system since the data path from the DRAM to the CPU and Tommy Jerry chips is sixty four bits wide. <laughs> okay. I remember I remember there was a little bit of a, a kerfuffle about that back in the day. But let's continue. Uh the arrival of Saturn in PlayStation. Uh, In early 1995, Atari announced that they had dropped the price of Jaguar to $149.99 in order to be more competitive. Atari ran infomercials with enthusiastic salesmen touting the game system. These aired for most of 1995, but did not sell the remaining stock of Jaguar systems. In a 1995 interview with Next Generation, then-CEO Sam Tramiel declared that the Jaguar was as powerful, if not more powerful, than the newly launched Sega Saturn and slightly weaker than the upcoming PlayStation. Next Generation received a deluge of letters responding to Tramiel's comments. Particularly his threat to bring Sony to court for price dumping if the PlayStation entered the US market at a retail price below three hundred dollars. Many readers found this threat hollow and hypocritical. Since Tramiel noted in the same interview that Atari was selling the Jaguar at a loss. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If you can't if you can't play if you can't play nice, play dirty, right? Anyway, to continue. Uh, the editor responded that the price dumping does not have to do with a product being Price below cost, but it is being priced much lower in one country than another, which, as Tramiel said, is illegal. Tramiel and Next Generation agreed that the PlayStation's Japanese price converts to approximately $500. His remark that the small number of third-party Jaguar games was good for Atari's profitability, angered Jaguar owners who were already frustrated at how few games were coming out for the system. In Atari's 1995 annual report, it noted, Jaguar sales were substantially below Atari's expectations, and Atari's business and financial results were materially adversely affected in 1995 as Atari continued to invest heavily in Jaguar game development, entered into arrangements to publish certain licensed titles, and reduced the retail price for its Jaguar console unit. Atari attributes the poor performance of Jaguar to a number of factors, including one, extensive delays in development of software for the jaguar which resulted in reduced orders due to customer concern as to when titles for the platform would be released and how many titles would ultimately be available and two the introduction of competing products by sega and sony in may 1995 and september 1995 respectively in addition atari had severely limited financial resources and so could not create the level of marketing which has historically back successful gaming consoles into the decline. By November 1995, mass layoffs and insider statements were fueling journalistic speculation that Atari had ceased both development and manufacturing for the Jaguar and was simply trying to sell off existing stock before exiting the video gaming industry. Although Atari continued to deny these theories going into 1996, Core uh, Jaguar developers such as High Voltage Software and Beyond Games stated they were no longer receiving communications from Atari regarding future Jaguar projects. In its SEC filing, filed April 12, 1996, Atari informed stockholders that its revenue had declined more, by more than half from $38.7 million in 1994 to $14.6 million in 1995, then gave them the news on the truly dire nature of the Jaguar. From the introduction of the Jaguar in late 1993 through the end of 1995, Atari sold approximately 125,000 units of Jaguar. As of December 31st, 1995, Atari had approximately 100,000 units of Jaguar in inventory. The filing confirmed that Atari had a bin in the Jaguar in November of 95 and in subsequent months were concerned chiefly with liquidating its inventory of Jaguar products. On April 8, 1996, Atari Corporation agreed to merge with JTS Incorporation in a reverse takeover, thus forming JTS Corporation. The merger was finalized on July 30th. After the merger, the bulk of Jaguar inventory remained unsold and would finally be moved out to Tiger Software, a private liquidator, on December 30th. 23rd to 1996 On March 13th, 1998 GTS sold the Atari name and all of the Atari properties to Hasbro Interactive And let's see, let's go to the legacy Uh, Telegames continued to publish games for the Jaguar after it was discontinued and for a time it was the only company to do so On May 14th, 1999 Hasbro Interactive announced that it had released all patents to the Jaguar declaring it an open platform This opened the door for extensive homebrew development. Following the announcement, Songbird Productions joined Telegames in releasing unfinished Jaguar games alongside new games to satisfy the cult following. Hasbro Interactive, along with all the Atari properties, was sold to Infogrames on January 29, 2001. In the United Kingdom in 2001, Telegames and Retailer Game uh, made a deal to bring the Jaguar to games retail outlets. It was initially sold for $29.99 pound sterling, new and software ranged between $9.99 pound sterling for more common games such as Doom and Ruin or Pinball, and $39.99 pound sterling for rarer releases such as Defender 2000 and Checkered Flag. The machine had a presence in stores up until 2007, when remaining consoles were sold off for $9.99 pound British pound sterling, and games were sold for as low as 97 pence. Wow! <laughs> uh, in 1997, Imagine Systems, a manufacturer of dental imaging equipment, purchased the Jaguar cartridge and console molds from JTS. The console molds could, with minor modification, fit their Hot Rod camera, and the cartridge molds were reused to create an optional memory expansion card. Uh, In December 2014, the molds were purchased from Imagine Systems by Mike Kennedy, owner of the Kickstarter-funded Retro Video Game Magazine, to to propose a new crowdfunded video game console, the Retro VGS, later rebranded to the Coleco Chameleon. After entering a licensing agreement with Coleco, uh, the purchase of the molds was far cheaper than designing and manufacturing entirely new molds, and Kennedy described their acquisition as, quote, the entire reason the Retro VGS is possible, end quote. However, the project was terminated in March 2016 following criticism of Kennedy and doubts regarding demand for the proposed console. Two prototypes were discovered to be fakes, and Coleco withdrew from the project. After the project's termination, the molds were sold to Albert Iruzzo, the founder of Atari Age website. Wow. <laughs> that is what you call a fall from grace. Sheesh. Jeez, I can't even believe that. Okay, that's all the information for the uh, the Atari Jaguar, so let's move on to my experiences with it. Okay, um, my only experience with this console was when my roommate got to bring home a Jaguar from her place of work for about two weeks. Uh, I have to admit the Tempest and Robotron remakes were fun and interesting to play but there just wasn't enough to really sustain the system, especially when the PlayStation launched in 1995. The controllers were horrible as they were too bulky and unwieldy especially compared to the Genesis 6 button controller and even the SNES controller. This, unfortunately was Atari's last stand in the console market, a rather sad ending to a pioneer in the industry as it went out with a whimper. (laughs) and that's just how I felt about it um, okay that's the Jaguar um, if you're one of those guys out there who's uh, in the uh, in, you know, who's a developer for like you know all these uh, homebrew games or you know about these homebrew games um, and you just you know you have a good or you have a feeling about the, the Jaguar in general hey hit me up brian at gmail.com and finally, we're going to go on the road. Okay, this one was recorded May 3rd of 2021, and I believe I was going on about Bolarama. Um, well, for you'll find out as I'm talking about it, but Bolarama was a uh, bowling alley in the on the north side of my neighborhood. Uh, basically, I used it as a way station uh, when I was walking to and from the mall. And especially in the summertime, when it was really hot outside, I could go in there and you know, get a drink from the uh, water fountain, and if I had some money, I could go in the game room and play games. I mean, it didn't have enough for me to do an uh, arcade uh, review. I think I did a rundown, uh, but yeah, I mean, there was only a few uh, games in that place, because the... The space for the arcade, I mean the arcade, the space for the game room was maybe like, I want to say, I'd say probably like 15 by 20 or something like that. It was really small, but they always were rotating games in and out, and it was still a staple in my childhood and my teenage years until it closed in 1988. So yeah, I mean, I just felt that I still had to give it its props. So uh, enjoy this on the road segment. Um, You guys be safe out there, and I'll be back for episode 63. Later. been in existence long since before I was born I want to say that place started in Bridgeport in I would say sometime in the 50s just looking at and remembering um, the font that was used for the signage of the place you know you know, as you're walking in the main entrance you got Bolorama above it and it's in this like Art Deco type uh, font, and even when I first started going to Bolorama, when I was like, oh goodness, when I started going there by myself, I was maybe like 10, 11 years old, when I started going there regularly, um, you could smell the age of the place when you walked in, you know, you could smell the... Faint. I mean, the, the overwhelming scent, of course, was the wax that was on the bowling lanes. Of course, that's true of almost any bowling alley on the face of the planet. You know, that's got more than say, like, 15 lanes, like 20, 25 lanes and up. You know, that's the first smell you, you you that hits your nose when you walk into the place. The second one which, you know, it was sort of like this, like, mixture of smells, but it was like, you know, the dominant smell by far was the wax on the bowling lanes. The second was this this faint undertone of alcohol coming out of the bar. And then, overlay, you know, overlaying all of that was the... Especially if it was going, but all the the smells coming from the snack bar. You know, typical bowling alley food. Hamburgers, hot dogs, french fries, chili dogs. You know, the whole nine. So, that's what would hit you when you would walk in. The, The main desk, the customer service desk is directly ahead of you. It takes two steps to get there, and it's on a raised platform. Um, Not even so much a raised platform, but basically the desk was built, I'd say it was about, what, close to five feet high. And the people who are behind the counter were on like a a raised platform like about a foot higher than uh, floor level. So, you had that. If you went to your right, your immediate right, um, you would go, you would see the, you know, see the entrance to the bar, which had its own entrance and exit, by the way. Um, And then further down that way, as you're walking down the lane, you had your lockers had the lockers and everything like that then you had near the north exit and entrance to the place um you had the pro shop and then a couple of bathrooms that was that side of the bowling alley going the other way um of course to when you would turn right and then you take one or two steps to take into your immediate left was the entrance for the game room um, we'll come back to that, of course, because that's the main thrust of this thing. But um going further down, um more lanes, more lockers, and bathrooms on that side. And a couple of and on either side of the entrance there are a couple of drinking fountains. Um and of course, right after the game room was the snack bar. Um But yeah, I mean, that's how, that's what it was. It was an old school. I mean, even back in the eighties, it was old school, old school bowling alley, you know, no frills, no fluff. You're here to bowl or you're here to drink or you're here to play games or you're here to eat eat, or a combination of the four. Um, Let's see. Now the game room itself was really, really small. It wasn't big at all. I mean, it was maybe what 40, 40 a forty by thirty uh, room. Um, all the walls except the wall uh, facing out, you know, facing outside, were glass. So anybody walking into oh, I take it back. I just remembered the pro shop. Was literally next door to the uh, next door to the game room. You know, if you're walking in, it's like an immediate turn to the left if you're going that way. And then one one door down was the game room. That's right. Because you could look in through the window, you know, look through the glass in the game room, and you would see everything going on in the pro shop. I don't know why I would think the pro shop was in another place. <laughs> Well, you know, when you get older, your memories start to fade a little or they start mixing in with other things, you remember? But anyway, so the game room was small. I'm trying to think the most games they ever had in the game room. I want to say it's like seven or eight, maybe eight, because I think uh, by the time... 1986 came around, um, they were going, like, full arcade games with one pinball machine, that's how it was, but back when I first started going there in, like, 79 or 80, um, it was, like, four, three or four arcade games and, like, three pinball machines, that's what I remember, um... You know and they would get like brand new games of the day when they would come out every so often they got Missile Command when they came out in 1980 um, because that's what I remember uh, one day after going to the mall and you know hanging out in the mall and you know trying to play Missile Command I mean literally Missile Command had been out for maybe like a week and it was just there was just no way to get on the machine because it's like I've said before, you had a bunch of middle to upper class white kids, you know, who basically would, you know, put, you know, get like $10 and quarters and just put them on the bezels and just hog the game all day until Carlo had to, had to tell them, look, you guys are hogging the game, share it. Other people want to play it. You know, Carlo was a good guy like that. But, I digress. Um, let's see. So, what I remember was there were, like I said, it was like a combination of video games and, uh, pinball machines. It was like almost a 50-50 split. I think it would have been if there was actual physical space for a fourth pinball machine. Um... But this place got, they got, they rotated games in and out rather quickly. Um, It was one of these things where I think they made the majority of their money back when they would either lease or buy a machine. And once they did that and the game stopped making money, I think they would just sell it or. flip their lease over to another game and they would bring that game in Um, yeah this place like I said when I was talking about um, video game I mean excuse me arcades versus game rooms Um, this place was a you know little uh, gaming way station if you will if I was like going to the mall or I was coming home from the mall. I mean, especially in the summertime when it's like, you know, temperatures are in, you know, the upper 80s, you know, going into the 90s, you know, with humidity and walking the two miles from the mall to my house was a real challenge, especially because if I was at the mall all day, you know, I had hung out in the arcade, I had walked the mall several times. You know and yeah I mean my legs are my legs are hurting I'm probably a little bit dehydrated things like that I mean I remember vividly several times where I would go into you know because I'd be walking down Main Street or I would be coming around Brookside Shopping Center where the where Bullarama was and um you know, in order to stay out of the sun as long as I could, I would basically go in the northern entrance. There were two ways I'd do it. There's a northern entrance to the shopping center. Uh, I would walk in that way and I'd just walk across. I'd start it, like, say, well, back in the day it was a Western Auto uh, store. I would start there because the walkway for the entire shopping Lakers shopping center was shaded. It was covered. You know, there was like overhang, there's like it was just one big overhang the whole way down until you got to the entrance to finest supermarket. And then I would just, you know, so I I remember there were a couple of days where yeah, I was feeling it because it was a really hot summer day. And I'm just like I'm. Somehow I got to make it home, but yeah, you know when your legs are tired and your feet are hurting, and you haven't had very much to drink, you know while you're messing around in the mall. Yeah, that's kind of tough. So I would just walk all the way down. Sometimes I would stop at uh, at the um, Liggett's drugstore. You know, which was like next door to a uh, dry clean uh, dry cleaning service, which was next door to Finest. And I'd go in there for like half an hour and go over to their magazine section and just chill. Or if I had a quarter and they still had a video game machine in there, because that's where I found Space Panic. They had that. Um, I think they had Eliminator in there. That's the first time I encountered that game. Um, But yeah, I would stop there and just chill for a little bit until the pharmacist who was, you know, you know, where the little pharmacy they had was like literally, you know, right there next to the magazines and books. They'd see me just sitting there, you know, reading magazines and stuff. And, you know, they come and kick me out. And then I just walk over to uh, Bolorama. I mean, there are plenty of times where after a long jaunt at the mall, you know, where I you know walk several miles <laughs> in the mall, you know, going from the arcade to the department stores and just walking around the upper or lower level and things like that. I mean. You got to you got to think. Just walking the mall. Why, why do you think it's like I said before? Why do you think you see a lot of older people doing that at like eight o'clock, eight thirty in the morning, before all the stores open? Because they are able to get their walk in in a climate-controlled environment. They don't have to worry about you know rain or heat or cold or snow, you know, or any any sort of inclement weather at all. So, you know, so yeah, I mean, so it was a way station on my way home. And sometimes it was a little way station on my way to the mall if I was walking to the mall. Um, so on, one, on a time at home, you know, on my way home, I would walk in there and I would take a drink from their water fountain like a man that's out, uh, truly dying of thirst in the desert and sometimes I did feel that way I'm not going to lie um then from there if I had any money I would go into the game room I mean there would be just some times where I would be just so tired that I would just find an empty lane or an empty table um and just sit down and rest. And there were some times where. I would. You know if I had a, had like a dollar or fifty cents. Or whatever I had. I would go to uh, the game room and play a game. Sometimes I'd play pinball. Sometimes I'd play an arcade game. You know a video game. And that's how it was. For the longest time. You know. I mean, I got to see Akari Warriors in that place. I got to see track and field when that came out because that was the only place in on the north side of Bridgeport that had track and field. Honestly, you know, because the only other place I knew that had track and field when it came out in '83 was um, oh, where was it? Was it no? Was it the news corner? It might have been the news. It was either news corner or the train station. One of the two. Um, so, like I said, I would go there all the time, and I love that place. Even when they kicked me out for fighting, and it wasn't my fault. I talked about that when I talk about 1986. Um, you know, uh, top tens 1986. You know, I relayed the story about how this guy who we had just a a really strong dislike for each other because this guy was always trying to pick fights with the world. (laughs) And he'd been kicked out of Bolarama several times just because he was, you know, a punk kid who was always trying to start trouble. And he must've like one of his relatives, his mom or his dad or an uncle or something must've worked at the, Bowling alley because he'd get himself back in there, you know. Every time he got himself kicked out, um. But yeah, I mean, actually there was this. Yeah, I think no, actually it wasn't the same guy. There was another guy who wanted to pick a fight with me, but instead of fighting me hand to hand, he was trying reaching in his back pocket like he had a knife, and I'm just like, well, if you're gonna fight me, take your hand out of your back pocket. And yeah. That's when I realized that, yeah, some people are just got these really, really distorted views of black people. Like, I'm going to all of a sudden transform into some super Kung Fu Joe fighting machine and beat the ever-loving shit out of him, even though the guy deserved it because, you know, he was talking a lot of smack and he wasn't willing to back it up or at least he wasn't willing to back it up without trying to stab somebody you know so yeah that was that okay I'm gonna stop so pause okay I'm back um so yeah I mean I used to go there all the time there would even be times where I would just go there you know and not go to the mall for some reason you know Especially if they had a game that I was really interested in. You know, like Akari Warriors, because God only knows when that game came out in, what was that, 86? 86 close to 87? I think it was 87 when they got it. But, yeah, I mean, I threw a lot of money in that game. <laughs> you know, pretty much every, every quarter that I could glean work for scrap, scrape, beg, borrow and steal. That it went in that game cuz it was just one of those games where I was really 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 down with it. I loved it. It was a great game. Um but yeah, I mean, I think I can count the number of times I've actually bowled at Bullarama on one hand. One. There was one time where I gotten my allowance and I was just like you know, if I'm going to come here, I maybe should bowl once. I want to see how good I can do. You know? And I did. I bowled a game. I mean, sh- bowling games, games were like, what, a dollar fifty back in those days? $2 maybe? I mean, the place would be jumping during the week because you had all kinds of leagues in the place. You know? And... It was one of those where, you know, I think a lot of people were legitimately sad when the place closed down in 1988, you know, they're just, I guess they're just, I guess there weren't, well, I think what I think part of it was, is that, um, the place was no longer modern enough. You know, even in the mid '80s, most places, most bowling alleys had automated scoring. This place did not. They had the old um, projectors for that. You know, where the um, where they had the score where where they had the scoreboard lit up. You know, and projected onto a white screen. Uh, above the lane, um, and you would just write in your scores as somebody was bowling. I mean, I remember I even had a little bit of a hustle. I got so good at knowing how to score bowling, I would actually charge 50 cents a game to people for me, you know, to keep score for them. You know, I would just ask them, would you like me to keep score? You know, 50 cents, you know, and things like that. I think that's the I think that's the first time I got kicked out of Polarama. <laughs> I think the manager who uh, ran the plates was behind the register that day. And she saw that I was running that hustle and she just did not like it. She just kicked me out and wouldn't let me back in for like a month. <laughs> yeah. 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 I had, I was, I was pretty bold back then. <laughs> That's for sure. I miss that part of me sometimes. um, but yeah, I mean as far as the games went, um, yeah, they had all of the, you know, they had classics, they had the new games when they came out every so often. Um, you know, they had Ms. Pac-Man shortly after it came out. You know, they had Track and Field when it came out, Akari Warriors when it came out, and, Pro- and Ghosts and Goblins when it came out in eighty six. Because, yeah, I was really, really on a jag with ghosts and goblins for a little while. Because, yeah, that game, you know, yeah, that's when I knew, you know, that games that originated in Japan were just on another level as far as difficulty went. And, yeah, (laughs) it was just one of those things that, you know, you would just learn. I mean, if you've played a game that had Japanese characters on it, you better have a few dollars to put into it because, yeah, you're going to get run off it. As far as pinball machines go, oh, man, they had Gorgar. uh, They had um, The Getaway. um, Goodness, I can't even remember. I think they had, yeah, they had Kiss. I think they had Playboy for a little while. And so on and so forth I mean they would rotate stuff in Maybe like every three months or so Maybe as if it was still making money Maybe as many as six But yeah I mean This place I loved it It was a wonderful Little place to go to And Just You know Bowl like I said bowl Eat drink play video games Or combination of the four You know, I mean, I remember my friend uh, Darren who lived uh, literally two streets over from my, from off of my street. And I remember, oh, the reason why I knew him was because I had a crush on his sister, you know, his sister Tracy. And I remember... You know, Darren, Darren took a liking to me back in those days. Cause that was when I was like, maybe like what, eight or nine years old. And I think Tracy was like 12 or 13, you know, st- something like that. Maybe even as old as 14. And well, yeah, I did have a, pend- a tendency to have crushes on older, older girls back then. That's for sure. <laughs> I'll, maybe I'll tell that story. Maybe I won't, maybe I already have, um, So, and, you know, so smash cut to, oh goodness, when was this? This is what, 1984, 85, I think. And Darren is trying to uh, become a professional bowler. Um, As far as talent went, I don't think he had enough to be, you know, to really be one of the greats. And I think after a while he knew it. But I remember a couple of times I would see him bowling in Bolarama and I'd walk over there and just take a seat and watch him and give him some, you know, moral support. You know, because, you know, you know, I consider Darren a friend and, you know, it's what you did for your friends when they were trying to do something, you know, with themselves. You know. At least that's how I felt about it. You know, I always try to, you know, be supportive of him. And that's how I met his friend, Steve Swit, who was a really good uh, video game player. I knew who he was in, uh, you know, just from my exploits at the mall, you know, starting in like 79 or 80. But I knew who he was, but, you know, I didn't know, know know him personally and I didn't really get to know him until he was, you know, until, um, you know, I saw him playing games at, uh, Bullarama and I'd start asking him questions, you know? I mean, he taught me more about missile command than anybody else. And he was pretty good at the game back in 1980. So, you know, and I met a few more other people and, you know, you know, all of the, um, people who worked at the place knew me on site, my friend Mark got a job there in, what, 83, I think, I mean, he got that job, like, right when he turned 16, after he, I think it was after he got his license, I'll have to ask him about it, but it was after he got his license, and he started borrowing his mom's car, his mom had this nice, um, beige Buick Regal, and you know, every so often I'd see Mark driving it, you know, or, you know, if I happened to be coming home from the mall, I would, you know, check the parking lot to see if, um, his mom's car is parked there. And if it was, I knew he was working the lanes cause that's what he did. He worked, uh, the bowling lanes and he would also, um, work in the, uh, snack bar every so often. So, you know, if I knew he was there and I would just, you know, take stock of what day it was, because if it was like, you know, Wednesday, Thursday night or something like that, I knew he was going to go straight home because, um, you know, it was school night. He was still at school when he was working, I think. I think he would like get this job in the spring and he would just work it through summer. I mean, maybe he had it after that. I'll have to ask him about that too. Um so, um, yeah, like I said, he, you know, I would check, you know, see if he was working there, and if he was, I'd go in, you know, I'd wait until he come out from, you know, behind the, uh, you know, out from behind the lanes, because that's where he was most of the time, if he wasn't working in the snack bar, you know, and I'd ask him, if it was like a Friday or a Saturday night, I'd ask him if he was going to Milford Rec after he was done at work, and if, he you know if he said yeah then you know i'd ask if i could tag along with him and then i just wait you know just hang out at uh wait till he got off the clock and then we just pile in his car and he'd probably go home first and you know change his clothes take a shower or whatever and then you know then we would you know he would get on the phone call his friends figure out you know who's gonna go to milford Rec, and then um You know, we'd pile in his car from his house, and, you know, we'd go to Milford Rec from there. Um, Or we would come down to where his friend Steve was, lived, which was about half a block down Main Street from uh, Bolarama. He was, like, right across the street from Pathmark uh, Supermarket, which was next door to Bolarama. That that was the funny part, because Bolarama was, like, right in between two supermarkets. Markets Pathmark on the south side, and finest supermarkets on the north side. Um, so yeah, we would you know do that, and if Steve was you know, if he had a car, he would meet us there, or more often than not, he would just um, he'd ask Mark to come you know to ride along with him, and Mark would come down and pick him up, and then we would just go uh, drive back up to the Merritt Parkway and go to Milford Rec that way. Um, and those were the nights I, you know, I had the most fun because, you know, like I said, it, when I did my day in the life of an arcade addict, you know, this was like, this was like bonus time for me. It really was, you know, where, um, you know, I would start like what, one o'clock in the afternoon, hang out in the arcade until, like, four, you know, in the mall at, like, four, until, like, five or six, then come down to Bolorama, see if Mark was working, and if Mark was working, I'd ask him if he was going to Milford Rec, and, or uh, Arnie's place, for that matter, or Gompers, for that matter, you know, and he would, and there were times where, yeah, there was a couple of times where, when in Milford they had, you know, The one at the Connecticut Post Mall, Milford Rack, and then there was Gompers further up the street. They do an arcade run and go to all three places, which was awesome, you know, especially for me, who is an arcade addict and felt the most at home, oops, in arcades. That's how it was. Okay, so this is Brian saying, have fun out there, good gaming, stay safe, stay smart, we're going to get through this. You have to believe in it. Au revoir. This has been the Confessions of an Arcade Addict podcast. All music has been provided by Kevin McLeod. You can find his music at incompetech.com. You can contact the show by email at arcadeaddictbryan at gmail.com. Or you can call and leave a voicemail at 734 743 2433. Until next time, you have been listening to the Confessions of the Arcade Addict podcast. See you then.